Hello and welcome. I'm Sean. And I'm Kat. And this is another episode of Been There, Seen That. episode two on our road to the oscars today we'll be discussing the film licorice pizza directed by paul thomas anderson and before we go any further we do want to give you a note that this is not going to be a spoiler free episode so if you have not seen the film yet and don't want it ruined we suggest that you watch it before you give us a listen we also want to give a big thank you to everyone who listened to our first episode if you guys are returning and continuing down this journey with us we are so appreciative and we can't wait to keep putting these episodes out for you Thank you so much. You guys are the best. Absolutely. It means so much. That being said, I think we're ready to discuss Licorice Pizza. (laughs) Now I have to ask, before we get into the discussion of the movie, what did you think going in this film was going to be about with a title like Licorice Pizza? So I had no idea what Licorice Pizza was going to be referring to. I thought it was going to be like a niche little joke that they had in the film. I definitely, from the trailer, thought it was going to be some kind of coming of age movie. But from the discussions that I heard, I thought it was going to be a romance. And I kind of got a mix, but also neither of those, if that makes sense. It makes sense. And then going back to the title, I wasn't aware that licorice pizza was a slang term. Yeah, so the slang term for licorice pizza is referring to vinyl records. It's talking mm-hmm. about their shiny black appearance that resembles a stick of licorice and a record's about the size of a small pizza, roughly. That's where the slang comes from. But the movie was actually named after a famous Southern California record store that existed in the late 70s and 80s. Right. And I think that really lends its hand to what the film is trying to accomplish here, because at the end of the day, it's meant to invoke this sense of nostalgia. Now, Licorice Pizza follows the story of Gary Valentine and Alana Kane. They're played by Alana Heim of the band Heim and Cooper Hoffman, son of the late Philip Seymour Hoffman. Mm -hmm. It follows them on their adventures around the San Fernando Valley in the 1970s. So one of the articles I was reading i think this one was from the new york times they said the plot was an episodic structure and i think that's a really nice way of putting it because we don't have a typical plot structure in this film so a lot of the critics didn't actually like this film because they claimed that the plot was all over the place but Mm -hmm. the script was formed from paul thomas anderson recounting real life memories of him and his childhood friend gary goatsman who's currently a big film producer in hollywood oh i didn't know that Yeah, he works a lot with Tom Hanks. Oh, cool. Yeah, I think when I was watching the film, it didn't seem, you know, without that that plot structure that we're so used to having, it was was almost hard to watch. But, you know, in reading and researching it afterwards, seeing that it was meant to be more of an episodic structure, I think I can appreciate the way that the story formed a little more. Yeah, no, definitely. And I think that the two leads, Alana and Gary, played by Cooper and Alana, I think that their performances really carried this entire film. They brought the script to life beautifully. I don't think I could picture anyone else bringing these characters to life. Right, and that's really interesting because it's both of their first time doing any kind of film, correct? Yeah, this was their debut for both of them. And Alana was not nominated for an Oscar. There was a lot of buzz that she was going to be a frontrunner and she didn't Mm -hmm. get a nomination, which... I disagree with. I think she should have been nominated. Would you say the same? I don't necessarily agree with you for that one. <laughs> okay. Are you a <laughs> fan of the band time? Unrelated I side? I am. Yeah, I, I am a band. 
a band. I am a fan of their band. Um, and I do like her music and I loved the music video that they put at the beginning of the film. Um, so that's actually funny that you brought that up because I've seen this movie in theaters three times now. The third time mm-hmm. was yesterday for a fresh watch before this episode. And that was the first time they had that music video. They didn't have it the prior two times. I was very confused really? when it started. I think I, oh, looked, I totally thought that was part of the film. I looked it up online yesterday when I got home and it says that an article that came out two days ago said that that was just a thing. They don't know if it's a single that's coming out. They don't know what it is, but it's not a song that's currently available. That's so odd. Maybe it was only in select theaters. I know we get a little, like a lot of weird things here because it's like I'm seeing them in New York theaters. Yeah. Well, Paul Thomas Anderson also directed the music video for the pre-show. Right. And I like seeing that before, I thought they were like doing a, a almost a note to say that the, the whole film was going to be a sort of music video type thing. I was like really a, confused. <laughs> like a lemonade type thing almost. Yeah. Like a visual album. Right. Um, So seeing that before and not having any idea what the film was going to be about, I was extremely confused. Anderson's history with the family actually goes back and began with their mother. He knew their mother when he was younger. She was his elementary art school teacher. And years, years later, about 40 years later, he heard the band playing on the radio and set up a meeting with the three sisters because he remembered the teacher and wanted to reach out to them. And they kicked things off and he's directed a few of their music videos, actually. But that's where he met Alana. And that's where he started coming up with part of the story in his head for Licorice Pizza. That is so crazy. Like, what a crazy story. (laughs) Yeah, he approached her and he was just like, I have this movie and the character is you. I wrote this character with you in mind and there's no one else for this character. And she'd never acted before. This was her first acting debut. And I think that it's a very good film for her to shine in. It really is a showcase for her. I agree. And I think, you know, it's very rare to have a film written for a specific actor in their first role. So I I do think that gave her a little bit of a foot up. I will say it does come across as her first film. Um, I'm not going to say that she totally deserved an Oscar or anything for it, because I, I do think you know, if she if she continues to pursue this as a career in acting, you know, she definitely has room to grow. Um, and I, I think any actor in their first film has room to grow. But I, I think she did a really good job considering. I think especially with this year's nominations, there's a lot of green blood in the pool. There's a lot of fresh yeah. actors that we've never seen before and they made their debut. And now they're in the nominations and they're in the runnings. Right. And- or actors that have been like, in the spotlight for years and have never been nominated, i.e. Kristen Stewart, i.e. Kristen Dunst. Yeah, no, I think that there's definitely a a wide range in this year's pool of nominees. And I think that Alana Haim honestly could have brought some real talent. And I think that she rightfully so was a front runner. She ended up not getting nominated, but I could probably sub out someone on the nomination list. I won't do it, but I could sub out someone and replace her with it happily. Fair enough. Going back to the plot a little bit and the way that you're meant to watch this film, other than just watching it as an episodic scene progression, The New Yorker described it as, quote, Licorice Pizza is a film of immense swirling complexity and its elaborateness, like that of other recent films, including The French Dispatch, Zola, and Come On, Come On, comes off as a sort of defiance, a resistant to current modes of easy and consumable viewing. 
And I think we're seeing a, a little bit of a shift there because of, I know we talked about streaming last week. I think films have become very easy to view in this idea of easy and consumable, like easy to digest. You kind of don't have to pay too much attention to it. I don't think that's true with licorice pizza. And I think you do kind of have to pay attention to what's going on, even though there really isn't a plot. It's because it's a character driven story. You really have to pay attention to the things that are happening throughout it. I like that you said it's a character driven story because I felt like I was watching two different movies. I felt like I was watching Alana's movie and I was watching Gary's movie and that they were interwoven at parts, but they each had their different motives and their different reasons and they were moving all throughout. And I think that a beautiful part of the story is that, yes, it's a romance movie. We'll get into that. (laughs) But I think that it's showing these characters who mesh very well together, even though they're not great for each other they're coming in and out of each other's lives and they realize that being apart from each other is worse than just being together and it shows them coming together at the end and I kind of think there's something beautiful to that. I like that you said that you know we're watching two almost two separate films here because it's it's very rare that you have two protagonists where you're seeing like they each have their own solo scenes where they're living their own lives like you see Alana doing her thing with like the directors and the producers and then you see uh, Gary doing his stuff with like his business but these are two scenes that the other character is not involved in. And usually you're only following one character throughout the plot. So it's interesting to see those kind of two stories interwoven. One of my favorite things that Paul Thomas Anderson chose to do was have Alana's entire family play her family on screen. So the family that you see on camera is her real family. And they've talked behind the scenes about how they were pulling from real life experiences and that's actually how they would respond and that's actually how they would behave at certain parts. And I watched an interesting interview where Alana talked about her dad not knowing how to act as himself and he was trying to act like a cool dad and she had (laughs) to be like, no, dad, I need you to act like this is me. Like, this is me. I stayed out with a boy all night and I need you to give me that reaction. And I guess Uh they started rolling the cameras take two and he just gave it to them. And that's what's on camera. And that's something I really love because it brought out the family dynamic and it kind of made you feel more included in that whole scene and in the whole family's perspective. Yeah, I think that's an important point too, is when you're putting people on screen that A, have never been on screen before and B, are supposed to be playing themselves. I know like coming from an acting perspective, if I'm doing something where I'm playing myself, I completely forget who I am. Like it's so much easier to play a character. And I think that's where things get, you know, from people who aren't involved in the business and aren't involved in anything to do with the motion picture industry. It's, you don't really see that very often where there's, this kind of like pushback to being yourself on camera. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think that's a fun story. I think one of my favorite scenes in this whole thing was the dinner scene though. (laughs) The dinner scene was great. I laugh every single time. Every time I've seen it, I laugh. The the delivery in that scene is perfect. (laughs) Going back to her dad, her dad did a fantastic job. Yeah, playing himself, he uh, once he got the hang of it, he got the roll down. Yeah, absolutely. I think one of the things I also really liked about the movie was that it's based off of these real people that were around in that time. And it's meant mm-hmm. to make you feel like you're living in the valley in the 70s. Um, some similarities that you kind of see are Gary Goatsman, for those of you who aren't familiar, as a child actor of that time, he was in the original Yours, Mine, and Ours. And oh. there's a scene in the movie where they're doing a little television bit for press and it's a bunch of kids singing almost like a partridge family bit or the Brady bunch, something like that. 
Yeah, yeah. And one of the characters is supposed to be Lucille Ball, but it's Lucille Doolittle because, again, they're not going to use the same thing. Or, right. again, it's based off of Gary Goatsman. The main character is Gary Valentine. So it's very loosely based on these different stories that Paul Thomas Anderson was told by Gary, who is a close friend of his, and bringing that kind of together with this story that he made up of Alana in his head and kind of bringing it together. So I have a question for you on that. Yeah. Do you think Paul Thomas Anderson's personal ties to the story got a little involved in the script writing to where he was potentially blind to how it would come off to other people? Before I answer, can I ask you to answer your own question? <laughs> I think it's very difficult to separate your personal life from, you know, things that you're writing and see it from an outside perspective. And I think there were a lot of points throughout the film where I felt lost and I felt like I was not making making sense of things. And I, I do think that had a lot to do with his personal tie and you know what's important to him is maybe not what's so important to the audience i'd agree to an extent but i'd also disagree i'd go far enough to say that he didn't base it on his own stories because a it didn't happen to him and b he didn't want to feel too closely attached to the material Mm -hmm. um gary goatsman's a close friend of his from what i've been reading so i just kind of interpreted that as him creating almost this internal plane of this 15 year old boy and this 25 year old woman who's lost in her life and they're both on these two separate planes and they're coming together because they're just both lost i think that paul thomas anderson does a great job portraying power dynamics and relationships i mean if I you think. take a look at his film phantom thread it's a prime theme of it and a number of his other films as well. And I think that the dynamic in this one's interesting because even though Alana is an adult, she's 25 at the beginning of the film and Gary's 15, pause for a gasp, <laughs> Gary is so much more successful than her. He's a child star and he's this entrepreneur yeah. and he has the power in the relationship even though he's the younger one. And I think that that's really interesting. I think she also pulls power in the relationship at some points too, um, but he does give her a lot of pushback on it. He does. And whenever there's pushback, she gets upset with him. Right. So what are your thoughts on this as a coming of age drama? I think that's a really weird way to classify it. <laughs> I don't know if I would call this a coming of age film as much mm -hmm. as a romantic dramedy, maybe. Okay. A romantic dramedy period piece for the 70s. I feel like when you look at a movie and call it a coming of age film, there has to be some type of development. And I feel like the characters in this film didn't really develop into anything further. They realized they had feelings for each other, but they didn't actually become better people along the way. And I feel like with coming of age films, you kind of have to have that sense that they did come of age and there is a maturity yeah. happening. By the end of the film, they're still themselves. They just are finally admitting the elephant in the room, which is there is feelings involved. Okay, you've totally changed my mind because I, I did see this as a coming of age romance story right up until now. But I think that's an important note that you said there that nobody really changes. Because when you compare this to, I don't know, let's go with the biggest coming of age drama, Perks of Being a Wallflower, you know, everybody changes at the end there. And there's a big shift in like who these characters are as people. And you, you don't get that here. I think Alana's character stays as immature as she was in the beginning and then Gary's character stays a little ahead of his age like he was at the beginning and they just kind of confront those feelings that they're having towards each other. So yeah, I guess coming of age maybe isn't the categorization that I'd put it in. And I think with Alana, we have to acknowledge that there is a point in her character arc where she does get her life together. She starts working yeah. for a politician, 
which was a nod to Gary Goatsman working as a politician. Mm -hmm. Um, In real life, it was a little bit different. But Mm -hmm. she gets her life together and she realizes that she could have this, but she's not happy because she wants to be with Gary. And that's really what made her happy. And so she backpedals and ends up with Gary. We don't see the aftermath of if the relationship falters. We don't see if she leaves the politician's office. We don't see the aftermath of if she's going back into business with Gary because the whole partnership between them for the majority of this movie is business partners. Exactly. I think Alana's character is really interesting. So let's let's get into her a little bit. I think one of the things... You know, that's a little shocking about this is the age difference. Um, But I think when you're looking at it maturity wise, which I mean, we'll get into the age difference in a bit. But when you're looking at it maturity wise, Alana is kind of chasing after this youthfulness that she's losing. Because I mean, at that age, I mean, we're both 24, 25. It's you're kind of transitioning out of, oh, I can't even like really pretend to be a kid anymore because you're kind of facing life as an adult. And, you know, it's it's also the 70s. So she's things are you're meant to move a little faster I think she's people her age are probably married and having kids and I think she's chasing after that that feeling of being a kid again and that's that's where Gary comes into her life I mean she even she acknowledges it at that one point where she's having she's smoking with their sister and she says you know do you think it's weird them hanging out with Gary and his friends and her sister's like no I don't think it's weird and she goes I think it's weird but she continues to do it I think we also have to take a look at the introduction scene where these two characters meet each other She's working at the school as one of the assistants on picture day and Mm -hmm. they run into each other in the hallway. Gary pursues her at first and she says no. He asks her to dinner and she says there's no way she's going out with him because she's 25 and he's 15. She says he's 12 and he corrects her to 15. And the only reason at first that she entertains the idea is because she doesn't believe that he could actually afford to take her to dinner. So she shows up and then makes it very clear to him this is not a date. We can be friends. We are not dating. There's nothing here. And he acknowledges that. And I think that it's important to acknowledge the acknowledgement between the two of them. They made that agreement up front. And I think a lot of people are saying that this movie kind of makes it seem like she's grooming him. And I don't think that's the case at all. I feel like the people that might be saying that maybe haven't actually seen the movie and are kind of just reading some of the pushback. Yeah, I... I think it's like a really tricky scenario because it's definitely a little messed up what's going on here. I, th- I think Alana's character is certainly in the wrong in terms of their relationship. I Let's see, The New Yorker called it platonic lovers. And I think that's a good way of explaining their relationship because nothing really does happen between the two of them until the very end when they kiss. Um, they kiss and that's it. It's a single yeah. kiss. But it's I mean, not even like that's leaves. pushing it a little far, I think, because well, he, there's is still... 15 years old (laughs) so it kind of plays back my interpretation on that is it plays back into what you said earlier about the storytelling kind of being these different layers it makes it very hard to tell how much time has passed from the beginning of the movie to the Mm -hmm. end of the movie we're in the middle of high school obviously gary is very mature for his age and he's setting out on all these business endeavors but i feel like by the end of the movie at least a year or two has passed they've gone through two businesses and there's been a lot of stuff to happen between the two of them. Their relationship's gone all over the place. So for me, by the end of it, I thought he had reached 18 and that they could finally do something. I felt like the tension had been building up and finally there may have been an age difference. Mind you, that's just my 
theory on it. I don't actually know if the time had passed. So I could be completely wrong on that. Right. I don't think that much time has passed, but I think that's an interesting way of approaching it. I don't know. I, I feel kind of torn on this because I do think I do think it's messed up, like <laughs> the age gap. And I, I think the, you know, when you're working with a script like that, if she had been a little younger and he had been a little older, maybe it wouldn't have been as weird. But then you'd ruin some of the plot points that they have. I don't know. I, I'm kind of torn on it. I mean, we've also had other films to exist with inappropriate in terms of age relationships. I mean, you take a look at The Graduate, American Beauty, stuff like that. They're timeless films that have explored this similar theme and they didn't get as much pushback, which is kind of funny because it's the same concept. The only difference was American Beauty, she was in high school. That was that was yeah. interesting. And yeah. there's a whole deeper meaning to American Beauty. We're not going to get into that right now. The difference is, in my opinion, this particular movie takes place in a time where it wasn't as uncommon to see these big age gaps in Hollywood relationships. In Hollywood relationships. And I think that's important because I, I think Alana is on a certain level using Gary a little bit. And I don't really find Alana's character super likable, to be completely honest with you. And I think she does engage in this relationship because she wants something out of it, because she's she knows that he has pull and, you know, he's he's a child actor and she's his chaperone. And she even, you know, that scene where they're in New York together, she's like, I'm his chaperone. I'm his chaperone. And everybody's like, we don't care. And she she's just trying to insert herself into this life of Hollywood, which she kind of ends up doing towards the end. That particular point in the movie was actually pulled from a real life story that Gary Goetzman shared with Paul Thomas Anderson. Apparently when he was younger doing press for years, mine and ours as a kid, he was 16 and his mom couldn't go on the press tour with him to New York. So he hired a neighborhood burlesque dancer, Kiki page to go on the trip with him. Really? that That was pulled. Yeah. A lot of this movie is derivative of these stories that you're just like, that's messed up, but that's what happened. I mean, mind you, the burlesque dancers, a neighbor to him in real life whereas in this particular movie he had met this woman once and asked her to be a chaperone right i think a lot of going into this why i i I almost felt uncomfortable like walking into the theater was because people have been talking about it as a romance film and it really doesn't play on that a lot until the very end it it really is a like i said the new yorker called it platonic lovers kind of relationship and at parts it is uncomfortable to watch. And I I don't really, I think we really could have done without the kiss at the end. I think it was cute. I think there had definitely been the tension between the two of them, whether we want to admit it or not. But I think at the end of the day, whether it was necessary or not, it happened. Yeah. And like I said, I had a different interpretation of how time had passed, but clearly Mm -hmm. like you didn't. So we saw two different interpretations of the film. Well, going back to your time has passed thing, there is that question of how old is Alana because she says several times that she's 25, but then towards the end of the movie, um, oh my God, what's his name? Bradley Cooper's character? John Peters. He asks her how old she is and she says 28 and he said, how old are you? And she said 25. So it's there is that question of like, how old is she really? And yeah. how how deep in denial is she about growing up? So when I first saw that scene, I thought that was her way of letting the audience know that time had passed as if it felt like no time had passed at all. And she's saying, oh, I'm 25 still because that's what happened when I first met Gary and here we are. And she looks at it and goes, oh, wait, I'm 28. And so she says 28 and then goes, no, I'm 25. I'm still here with Gary. No time has passed at all. I felt like it was her living in a sense of denial. Yeah, there's almost this confusion of like 
time in the film. And I think, you know, maybe you're right. Maybe time did pass and that kind of makes things that happen like a little more okay towards the end. Um, I still don't completely agree with the film in its entirety, but... My whole thing is I feel like the main purpose of this film was not to show this inappropriate relationship develop, Mm -hmm. but more so to show these two people at different points in their adolescence and young adulthood being lost and coming together and just kind of finding solace in it. Yeah, I agree. And I I think a lot of it has to do with like chasing youthfulness. Like I keep going back to, I I think that scene at the end, I can't remember what I was reading, but it was something about using running and running is such a youthful thing and they use running a lot like there's a ton of shots of these characters running and towards the very end they they intercut them together to where it's like they look like they're running towards each other they're both running on opposite sides of the screen and i almost see that because alana's running from right to left and then gary's running from left to right and i almost in my brain immediately interpreted that as she's running backwards in time she's chasing after that youthfulness and he's running forwards in time and he's chasing after that maturity and because i think it's just something in, in your brain that hardwires left to right as forward and right to left as backwards definitely and i think that that definitely plays into Maybe why some people didn't necessarily find it as controversial having an age gap at that Mm -hmm. length, because they're both still, if she is 25, in their young adulthood life. It's believable that she would be lost having a quarter-life crisis. Yeah, we're all there right now. (laughs) We're all there. I think the second controversial aspect that was brought to public's attention is John Michael Higgins' character uses a fake Asian accent. Now... I do want to point out that this is a very brief moment in the film that... But it does happen several times. It happens twice. It happens on two occasions in the film. It's definitely one of those moments that was not necessary. I don't think it was necessary at all. I found that kind of shocking and uncomfortable to sit through (laughs) that he was doing that. And it was like, the reason he's using this accent is to try and make his Japanese wives, there's two, understand him. But he's not speaking Japanese to him. He's just speaking English with this really terrible and offensive accent. It's pretty bad. I like John Michael Higgins as a comedian. I think he's a pretty funny guy. Every time that I've seen him in something, I've laughed. This was Mm -hmm. the first time where I kind of was just like, "That's not." maybe we missed the mark there. I think another problem with something like that is, I've mentioned this before to you, anytime I watch a movie, I always look at stuff and ask myself, was this essential to the plot? Could this have been on the cutting room floor? And with Mm -hmm. Licorice Pizza, it's a very slow-moving plot. There's not a ton of stuff happening to progress. Like you said, it's very episodic. So when we have these cut scenes of five minutes of dialogue that's not actually furthering the plot, I have to question, and then it ends up being offensive dialogue, I really have to question how that got passed and why it was deemed necessary. I do know that Paul Thomas Anderson has said that the whole reason that he did something like that or did the age gap is because he didn't really want to censor what life was like in the 70s in the Valley because it was more common to see people like that. I mean, I'm sure there were a ton of millionaires just walking around LA getting all of these Japanese women as wives and being blatantly racist to them and no one was saying anything because it was a different time. Right, and I I think this movie in its entirety is supposed to be this love letter to the 70s and what it was like growing up in that place at that time. And I think there were a couple points where, like I said, it's, it's hard when you're writing a film or writing a script of any sort to censor what's important to you 
and what's important to the audience. And I think there was just some kind of gap in those moments where it's like that. Do we really need to be racist here? Because it's not important to the plot. Yeah. At that point, I would have just cut those scenes because, again, right. they really aren't important to the plot. There's and they don't not progress really, anything. They don't. They're just there to showcase John Michael Higgins being funny. But we already know yeah. that. And he but wasn't he funny. he wasn't funny. Yeah, it, exactly. it didn't land. Half my audience gasped audibly. Oh, my God. And I think the other half just sat in silence. I think they were confused that it happened. They didn't believe yeah. that it just happened. Yeah, it's, it's like, yeah, you want to keep it real to the 70s and everything. But at the same time, it's 2022 now. We need to uh, be conscious of our audiences. And, and there were we a should few know laughs. better. There were a few laughs in my theater. They were like the uncomfortable, I don't know what to do, so I'm going to give you the pity laugh laughs. Right. But yeah, it was Overall just not. unnecessary. It was not the highlight of this film, definitely. I completely understand why some people did get offended by that, and I definitely would cut it if I were to re-release it. I'm sure there's deleted scenes that could have fit in so much better. I would have loved to see more Alana Heim. If you give me a whole <laughs> a whole film franchise led by her, I'm okay with it. I know you loved her in this film. <laughs> I thought she was just incredible. And I love the band and I love her sisters and I love the whole family. They're great. Okay, well, let's talk about that. What specifically about Alana Heim did you like in this film? Because like I said, I found her in the nicest way possible, mediocre. And I think that that's actually what I liked about it is that we don't have this actress who looks like a model and they're trying to pass her off as this everyday girl. We have mm -hmm. a girl who is pretty, but she's not overbearingly pretty. We have this girl that has her life together enough to the point that you're not sitting there worried for her safety, but she's showing you that she doesn't have her life together. I think that the character was just, in a sense of finding purpose in life, relatable. I don't think it's relatable to go around and have crushes on 15-year-olds when you're taking their pictures at school, yeah. but <laughs> I think that the sense of being lost when you're 25 was definitely portrayed well through her character. And you can definitely tell that Paul Thomas Anderson sat down with her and talked to her about stuff that maybe she went through when she was 25 and mm -hmm. used that to form this character and create this story. I almost wish that we had two different films here. I wish we could have followed Gary and then I wish we could have followed Alana. I feel like by intertwining their stories, they kind of lost a little bit of credibility. And I think this film would have been more impactful and more well-received by audiences. Um but let's go into that real quick because we're coming off of Don't Look Up last week that was really highly rated with audiences and really lowly rated with critics. And now we're coming into a film that was praised by critics everywhere. I couldn't find a single bad article about it. But audiences, I almost haven't heard a single good review about it except for you, Sean. <laughs> I've asked a total of four people, not including you, because mm -hmm. believe it or not, this is the first time we are talking about this film. I saw it this morning. So. You saw it this morning. You're fresh off your watch. Yep. But I've asked four other people that I know have seen it. Two of them are in agreement with me and two of them despised it. And two of I've... them like actively despised it. And I feel like that's definitely the spectrum that people are on with this movie. It's either loved or it's hated. And I haven't it's really very met polarizing. anyone. I haven't really met anyone that's in between that. Yeah. And I, I know two people who walked out of the theater in the middle of it. I know one Not person... today though, right? No, no, no. Not today. But okay. um just in talking to them about it uh, leading up to this episode. And then I know one person who was extremely offended by it. And then one person who was like, well, it was okay. But it was definitely not actively 
appreciating it. Yeah, I can see why it's not everyone's cup of tea, but it's mine. Yeah, and I I find that it's really interesting that it was praised by critics so much because what what was our percentages that we pulled up here? So we have a 7.9 on IMDb. And on Rotten Tomatoes, we have a 91 from the critics and a 67 from audience. So it's still fresh on both ends. And 91 is high for critics. Yeah, but I mean, I don't really trust the critics. I trust the audience more so. The critics have steered me wrong before. I make my own opinions. (laughs) I agree with you on that. But in comparing it to last week's episode, you know, the critics hated that film so much. And I think... Like we talked about, it was part of the reason was because it was targeting them and the the press and the media. Yeah, Um, definitely. But I I think it's interesting that the critics really enjoyed this one. And maybe it's because a lot of the critics are old white dudes and (laughs) they're (laughs) dreaming of the 70s again. (laughs) It could be. Aren't we all dreaming of the 70s again? I mean, the 70s are really popular right now, which is kind of surprising to me that this film wasn't as well received as, you know. I think it's more the 80s. I think the 80s are the one that's making the comeback. Late 70s, early 80s. Yeah. Yeah. I think one of my favorite things that I saw for this was a commercial on YouTube. It was a very simple 30 second spot. And all it is, is the Heim sisters sitting there and Alana Heim's just sitting there and she's like, do you like waterbeds? Do you like pinball <laughs> machines? Do you like retro cars? Then you should see licorice pizza. And that's it. That's all it was. And oh I definitely God. think that something that brought a lot of people to wanting to see this movie was they saw the aesthetic present in the trailers. So they wanted to go there, but they didn't know what the movie was about. So they went out of a sense of curiosity. Right. I want to take a look at a quote from NBC News that Paul Thomas Anderson brings up when he's discussing the criticism that this film faced. He Mm -hmm. said that it would be a mistake to tell a period film through the eyes of 2021. And I have to agree with him. I think that a lot of the arguments people are making over why the plot aspects are controversial to an extent, there's no denying that they are controversial and not acceptable. But I think that what he's trying to say is that if this had been the 70s, it wouldn't have been frowned upon. It would have been normal. So I think he's wanting people to look at this as if this film is in the 70s from the 70s. It is the 70s. Interesting. And I think that's a that's definitely an interesting way of looking at it. I'm not sure I completely agree with that statement um, in pushing the narrative of these things are okay. When you're releasing a film, I think you need to take into consideration the time and the place in which you're releasing it. And I do think there were aspects of this that you know, could have been not censored, but changed a little bit. Um, If we had made the age gap a little smaller and a little more legal, um, and then maybe completely cut that super racist bit. (laughs) So those are your two notes for the film? Yeah, those are my two notes for the film. Um, Just the age gap and the like (laughs) unnecessary racist parts. But other than that, I, I guess I can kind of see where he might think that. In the creation of this? So looking at a film like this, it's obviously stirred controversy. Looking at it as a Best Picture nominee, Mm -hmm. what do you think? Do you think that it's worthy of a title? Do you think that it's definitely something you would see as a Best Picture? I am completely against this as a Best Picture nominee, to give you my honest opinion. I am offended that this was chosen over some other films that 
were not chosen and that were absolute works of art. Um, hopefully we'll discuss those at a later date. I don't want to bring in any other films to compare this to because that's Catherine's not Catherine's still upset that Spencer is not nominated for a best picture. I'm more upset that Macbeth isn't nominated, but <laughs> that's neither here nor there. I mean, I, like I said, I don't want to compare this film to those two because it's not fair to compare, you know, two separate films to each other. But I, I just don't really understand how this got a nomination over other films from this year. I would definitely not put this in one of my top 10. What's your thoughts on this as a Best Picture nominee? I know you as loved a, it. As a Best Picture nominee, I have to tell you it's my front runner for this year. Really? Um, oh my purely God. because... If I take a look at my top 10 movies of last year, which Uh has changed like five times since I've made the list on New Year's Eve, Licorice Pizza is always in the top three, no matter how I rearrange it. Interesting. Yeah. It's one of my favorite movies of last year. I certainly wouldn't have even considered this as a nomination. (laughs) There are three movies from last year that are always in my top 10 whenever I rearrange my list. And it's always Licorice Pizza, Tragedy of Macbeth, and The Green Knight. Those are three that I'll stand by. Right. And I think, you know, like, hopefully we'll get into this at a later date. But there there are a lot of films, I think, that were not nominated this year. And I, I certainly would have put almost any of them over Licorice Pizza. Yeah. Would um, any of you guys be interested in hearing us talk about this? Because if you would, definitely let us know because it's something that we would love to do, but only if you want to hear it. Yeah, we're toying with the idea of giving you our our biggest snubs of the year as a special episode right before Oscars night. And Um, we would definitely do a mailbag so your voices could be heard as well. Absolutely. But yeah, let us know what you think about that. Send us a a DM or an email. But to answer your question, I do think that it is worthy of a Best Picture nominee, at least in Mm -hmm. my book. I understand why it's not everyone's cup of tea, and I understand why people will be upset if it gets a Best Picture award. But for me... I loved it, and I will happily watch it many more times. All right, so just wrapping this up a little bit here, um, what are your final thoughts on this film? Well, I think it comes down to looking at what we had to work with and what was given to us. This film was specifically supposed to be shot in May of 2020 and got pushed back to August because of COVID. So I think that given the circumstances of having to film this, in the middle of the pandemic, pre-vaccine and all of that, it definitely deserves some snaps. People people should give some snaps to this movie. And I think that it starred Alana Haim and Cooper Hoffman in exemplary roles. I think they both are forces to be reckoned with and are both only going to be going up from here. I think we're definitely going to be seeing more of both of them in the future. Um, overall, I just, I adore this film and it would definitely get probably an 8, 8.5 for me. I'd say 8.5. Oh Let's okay. give it an 8.5. Wow. All right. My opinions differ a little bit. <laughs> About 45 minutes into this film, I couldn't wait for it to be over. Um, <laughs> yeah, you were texting me through the whole thing. <laughs> I really couldn't stand it. And like I said a little earlier in the episode, I, I understand it a little more now that I see it through like an episodic lens. I I can appreciate that storytelling a little bit more but yeah i i couldn't stand this film i didn't think alana was a likable character i thought gary was an annoying character but i think 15 year old boys are just generally annoying so i think he did a good job with it but (laughs) i do think that part of the characters and the way that they were written was designed to make the sense of immaturity definitely be felt by the audience I i don't think they were meant to be likable but with that and then the non-existent plot structure, I was just kind of lost throughout the film and I, I wasn't 
I wasn't having a good time. I wasn't enjoying myself. I do think they captured that nostalgia pretty well that they were going for. Oh, yeah. Um, and the soundtrack and they, is great. Soundtrack is fantastic. And I, I think they really captured the 70s. Not that I was there, but um, <laughs> what I imagine the 70s would have been. But yeah, for me, I'll probably give it a four. A four? <laughs> You rated Don't Look Up higher than this? That's offensive. Yeah, I'm sorry. <laughs> I hope that everyone that is going on this journey with us loves Licorice Pizza because I think I want you them. might be in the minority there, Sean. I do, but like I told you, I've asked four people and it's two and two, so please fix this for me. Make that's it a, that's a make greater it a majority than me. So that's a greater majority than the people that I've talked to. Because I I've yet to find one person other than you that enjoyed this film. Well, I'm sure one day you will. I um, hope so. <laughs> but with that being said, we did just want to let you guys know to give us a follow on Twitter and Instagram at BTST Podcast. And if you have any film suggestions, shoot us a DM or email us at btstpodcast at gmail.com. Be sure to subscribe if you enjoyed today's episode and join us Monday where we'll be discussing CODA. I'm Sean. And I'm Catherine. And this has been an episode of Been There, Seen That. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.